DW Living Planet. If there's one thing Europe is famous for, it's old cities. Cobblestone streets, historical architecture, water fountains, manicured botanical gardens, fancy bridges, and all those bloody monuments. Think about it. People travel from all over the world to experience the old grandeur of Paris, Rome, London, Lisbon. As beautiful as they are, though, many of Europe's cities were not built for this new era. Across the world, Europe and beyond, cities are facing a future-proofing challenge. How can they hold more people, less heat, and stay afloat as global temperatures rise? More than half the world's population currently lives in cities. And about 68% of us will by 2050. So it's kind of important that we figure this out. Today on Living Planet, we're visiting a few cities that are trying a few different things out. Paris, Venice, and Rotterdam. I'm Charlie Shield. It's the most romantic and romanticised city in Europe, Paris. But the very architecture that makes Paris iconic also makes it an oven. Old buildings, narrow treeless streets, and those zinc rooftops. In fact, a recent study published in The Lancet found that Paris could have the highest heatwave-related deaths of any European capital by 2050, with summer temperatures predicted to reach 50 degrees Celsius. Before you freak out, though, the Parisians do have some kind of plan. They're aiming to reach climate neutrality by 2050, to be 100% reliable on renewable energy by then. That might sound pretty far away. But they have made some promising changes already. Lisa Louis went to check it out. Paris, the city of love, has long been a tourist's dream. But despite its air of romance, on hot summer days, it can feel difficult to breathe. Concrete roads and buildings turn the French capital into what's known as an urban heat island. Climate change could make it as hot here as in southern Spain. That's why Paris is investing tens of millions of euros to help cool down the city. Bonjour. Bonjour. Enchanté, Lisa Louis. Dan Lord is deputy mayor and in charge of implementing the climate plan. The Canal Saint-Martin here is already open for swimming. After next year's Olympic Games, we plan to open three more basing areas on the Seine River. This is a historic city built for a moderate climate and one of the five most densely built cities in the world. That's why it's like an oven, far more so than places spread out over a larger area. One plan is to replace concrete with earth that can soak up rainwater and cool down the air will also insulate public buildings. Many public squares have already gone green, like the Place de la Nation in northeastern Paris. Others are still in a transition phase, like the Place de Catalogne in southern Paris that will become an urban forest, as trees are crucial to cooling down the city. 
I am standing next to one of several brand new stretches of greenery across the city and I can feel the difference in temperature between here and just a few meters away over there. That's because the plants and trees provide shade and their roots draw water out of the ground which then evaporates on their leaves. Studies show that trees cool down the air by up to 10 degrees. They are like natural air conditioning units. The river Seine will not only become an open-air swimming pool, it's already providing a contribution to bringing down temperatures. It's part of an eco-friendly cooling system called Fraîcheur de Paris, a network of underground water pipes connected to over 700 buildings across the city. I'm paying a visit to one of the system's main cooling plants, the Centrale Canada. Raphael Neral is Secretary General at Fraîcheur de Paris. These pumps push ice-cold water through the system. The water is cooled by refrigeration units which heat up in the process. That heat will be dissipated into the Seine. Its water flows through a secondary circuit. This system consumes half as much electricity as a conventional air conditioning unit. What's more, that electricity comes entirely from renewable energy. The network today has 90 kilometers of pipes and the company plans to triple that over the coming 20 years. Paris was the first city in Europe to adopt such an underground cooling network. Now other municipalities are increasingly getting interested. Many city officials have come to visit us, especially from Northern Europe, to see how such a system works. It might seem a bit paradoxical since it's not so hot here in the north, but southern cities have been dealing with the heat for a while and have been adapting to it. Fraîcheur de Paris is already helping to cool places like the Louvre Museum and Paris City Hall. But air conditioning systems that use river water can't be endlessly extended, says Morgane Coulombert. She's the head of studies at Paris-based think tank Efficacity and an expert on urban climate adaptation. Systems like Fraîcheur de Paris warm up the river water, and that's only safe up to a certain threshold to protect the local biodiversity. So these systems can't cool down an entire city. We have to choose the buildings we'll cool down with them. In the future, Fraîcheur de Paris will also be connected to schools. Some of them are already enjoying the benefits of greener streets and pedestrian zones. And across the city, cars are increasingly sharing the streets with bicycles. You can already cycle almost all over Paris on large bike highways like this one. And the city will add another 55 kilometers of bike boulevards over the next three years. But not everybody is happy with the bicycle boon, which is leading to more traffic jams in busy areas. That's why planners need to take the concerns and needs of local communities into account, says climate expert Morgane Colombert. We need to make sure such plans are accepted, involve local people and explain the initiatives. Planners often focus on the technological side of climate adaptation, but the human factor is also important. Other plans are less controversial. The town hall is installing 632 square meter roofs on public squares across Paris. They'll provide shade to pedestrians. 
I accompanied Deputy Mayor Dan Lerd as he recently inaugurated one of these roofs in a lower-income neighborhood in the north of Paris. This is a new installation that will help us adapt to hotter temperatures that unfortunately are also affecting Paris. We carried out a little test just a few minutes ago and it's about 6 degrees Celsius cooler under this roof than it is under the sun. It can be up to 10 degrees cooler under the roof. And we've installed a new spray fountain over there. Then the deputy mayor took the small group of people attending the ceremony a few meters further. You just need to push this button and it sprays water for about 20 seconds. You feel the water, right? We are installing 24 such roofs and 73 spray fountains across Paris. They'll help us get through the summer on top of our existing heat measures. Our heat plan includes, for example, regularly checking in on vulnerable people and offering spaces such as in town halls where they can cool off. Measures like these will become even more important in the future if Paris, as some experts fear, will have to deal with up to 50 degrees Celsius one day. Lisa Louis, DW, Paris. Balade d'humeur exécrable, arbore un vulgaire, sourire de façade, les pieds traînent, souillés, mouillés, son humeur se dégrade, à la vue de l'état des rues, des trottoirs crades, il voit des zombies sombrés, inévitables, noyades, vent pollué, broyé, l'époque est malade, dans ses oreilles coule le gaz, des bulles de black sad, écriture limonade, poésie, un bras maussade, vente originale d'un jour malheureux, écrin de perles lacrymales, caché dans le creux des yeux, rebelle discret, en décibels mélodieux, cherche en vain, il reste d'un paradis poussiéreux. Seul entre les mégots, les capsules Entre les égaux, les crapules Piégés par la ville, happé par ses tentacules Égaré dans une histoire sans virgule Perméable bulle, il déambule Next up, we head to Venice The Italian city built on more than 100 small islands In a lagoon in the Adriatic Sea Famous for its old canals, gondola rides And that unmistakable Renaissance architecture a city facing some huge challenges, from the triple threat of over-tourism, never-ending construction and sea level rise. So what are they going to do about it? Jada Santana has more. If, from the arched windows of the San Marco Belfry, you saw a man on a tiny motorboat speeding towards the horizon, you probably would not be able to recognize him. Sebastiano Bergamaschi, 24, is covered from head to toe by a black scarf and a heavy, dark jacket. Only his eyes move and flicker, while the cold wind pushes against his face. Bergamaschi is one of the founders of Fridays for Future Venice. As he stands firm, the boat crosses the Petroli Tunnel, a few kilometers from Venice city center. Okay, now uh, we are in Canale dei Petroli and we could see on our left uh, all the industrial area. 
and the commercial area of Porto Marghera, in where they want to build up the new temporary uh, harbour for the cruise ships. The activist is on a boat mission to check out what's going on at the harbour of Porto Marghera. That's where a new port terminal is being built for cruise ships to dock into the lagoon of Venice. The whole city is against the development of the port, but uh, the problem is that, that the people that are agree with this the development are the uh, economic powerhouse of uh, Venice. That's Sebastiano's comrade, Ruggero Tallon, a spokesperson for the No Big Ships Committee. Like the majority of the city residents, Ruggero and Sebastiano have a nearly religious attachment to the city, which they consider to be a unique masterpiece. Residing on 15th century wood foundations, the historical center of Venice is composed of 120 islands, connected by 400 bridges and separated by 175 canals. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site visited every year by 30 million tourists. But there are less than 60,000 permanent residents in the city. Many have left over the years and continue to leave for lack of public services such as hospitals and public schools and because tourism has taken over. These days, when compared to Italian painter Tintoretto's 16th century frescoes, the city is visibly emptier. But more concerningly, sea levels are dangerously higher. Only in the past century, sea levels have risen 35 centimeters, a number way above average compared to the Mediterranean Sea, which in the same time has risen not even half that amount. Add colossal cruise ships to that mix, and things look set to get even worse. Cruise ships in Venice Lagoon are something locals have been protesting for many years. Sebastiano remembers throwing himself in the waters to block cruises from passing through the city nearly a decade ago. We, I hide in a boat uh, during the demonstration and uh, arrive <laughs> in, in the boat in the Canale, in Canale della Giudecca and jump out of the boat uh, to um, in the, in the middle of the of the canal to to block the ships with others. It was intense experience, of course. For that moment, for that hours, the ship big ships will not pass because also my body was there in the water, and that that was pretty good. After multiple anti cruise ship protests of this kind, the Italian government banned large vessels from entering the city's lagoon in July 2021. A new port away from the delicate ecosystem of Venice, was to be constructed to welcome ships above a certain size. Environmental activists celebrated, while some local institutions were aghast. The president of the Port Authority, Fulvio Di Blasio, had a lot to say about the government ban. He described it as dastardly because it was decided suddenly and without scientific evidence, he said. Since 2021, port authorities and cruise companies have been pushing to continue business as usual during the construction of the offshore port. So finally, last year, 
the government caved and started building a temporary port. Cruises will be able to still dock inside the lagoon, thanks to five different moorings scattered throughout the area. For many people, especially those who have been unemployed since the cruise ban, this is great news. But for the city's biodiversity and even its survival, the return of big ships to the lagoon is something to be worried about. Luca Zaggia, a senior researcher in the field of geosciences, explains why. Uh, in, the, in the past decades, the sites and the number of vessels increased, especially the sites, because to be competitive, uh, the, the maritime companies increased the, the sites of, uh, of, the, um, of the ships. So it displaces a lot of water, and um, this water, uh, this movement of water, has uh, um, big consequences for the stability of the shores and also of the tidal flats next to the channel. Small and mid-sized boats are also damaging the ecosystem. All these small vessels are totally uncontrolled. In the in the Lagoon of Venice, we have a lot of small vessels moving, and most of them are not even made for navigation in the lagoon. So they, they displace water and they create a lot of, uh, of uh, secondary waves and they are quite dangerous for the morphology and especially also for, for, the, for the monuments, for, for the city. Monuments like San Marcos Church, which, as of last year, is protected behind glass barriers that activate every time water inundates San Marcos Square. In 2022, the area was underwater for more than 260 hours. The faster the boats go, the bigger the waves, and the larger the impacts on the city's fragile wood foundations. Many researchers, including Zadja, have recommended that the city introduce speed limits in the canal, but they remain unheard. For activist Bergamaschi, the agenda of the Venetian administration is always the same. Short-term economic benefits over long-term considerations to protect the lagoon. The lagoon is fragile and lived from centuries to now thanks to a, a balance between nature and humans. And all these kind of, of solutions are not the um, a compromise, but is just what the economic world need uh, to continue to use Venice for their own interests. In the 1960s, Venice experienced the first and most destructive high tide in its history. Ever since, high tides have been getting more dangerous and more frequent. Sea level rise, human settlement and the lowering of ground surface all combine to threaten the city's ability to stay afloat. One of the most popular ideas to save Venice from sinking involves borrowing technology from the oil industry. Pietro Teatini, from UNESCO, wants to employ pumps, usually used to extract oil, to instead push water in the deep aquifers of the city. To do that, he would need to place wells about 500 meters under the Venice coastal area. Based on the numbers that we have gathered within our research, results indicate that we could raise the city above sea level evenly by 20 to 25 centimeters in the span of 10 years. 
Is it feasible? We should definitely explore it. A pilot project could cost a relatively small amount, around 10 million euros, says Teatini. But the local government has its own solution. A 6 billion euro dam that was first expected to be completed in 2016, then in 2020, and now, maybe, at the end of 2023. Many are skeptical that the dam is going to fix the many environmental problems Venice faces, including Teatini. In a hundred years, what will be of the lagoon? What do we want it to be? There's absolutely no medium to long-term vision of this kind, not in the slightest. For scientist Jane Damosto, there's no time to waste. I believe that we're now in what what scientists call as a state of deep uncertainty with what's happening to the environment, how the climate has changed. And the only response to deep uncertainty, if you use rational scientific thought, is to do everything that's possible and the idea of of doing the pilot study to raise Venice seems es- an essential way of, of buying time for everything else. Experts praise Teatini's project, but most Venetians don't know it even exists. The hard job of raising awareness is left to activists like Talon and Bergamaschi. Bergamaschi refuses to call himself an optimist, yet he believes a different future is possible. I still think that uh, the 50,000 uh, 50, people that live in Venice, that the 200,000 people that live in the mainland and still live uh, the bad consequences about all the political choices could change that kind of path and could create another opportunity. For now... A path that could steer this historic city away from sinking into the sea remains unclear. But many Venetians are working to bring it into existence. For DW, I'm Giada Santana in Venice, Italy. Another European country that is no stranger to water and flooding is the Netherlands. Having one-third of their land below sea level, yet still being above water, is a point of pride for the Dutch. They have centuries of experience staying afloat. Which is something that's becoming more and more useful as rising sea levels caused by climate change threaten further submersion. One tool in their flood mitigation toolbox is the storm surge barrier. The country is home to quite a few, including the world's largest – which is located not far from the cities of Rotterdam and The Hague. The Maslar gearing automatically closes when there's a serious risk of flooding, protecting one and a half million people living in the region nearby. It's pretty ingenious technology that had locals flocking to the water's edge for a recent testing day. Fernand van Tetz takes us there. Normally we would close at three metres plus expected to be at Rotterdam, uh, but it can close until four or five metres plus, uh, and even a little higher, maybe uh, a little bit of water will overflow, but uh, until the five metres plus it will uh, withstand for sure. Real? 
for real we have closed now twice in um, 25 years we expect to be closing more often in the future of course but uh, till so far just two times Mark Valraven is a storm surge barrier advisor at Rijkswaterstaat, the government agency responsible for the barrier and the country's other water defences. Originally this uh, barrier has been designed for a lifetime of 100 years uh, and already in the design uh, we encountered about 50 centimetres of sea level rise, so it's already in the design. Uh, but of course we all can't look that specifically into the future, so we expect somewhere between 2000 uh, 60, 2090, uh, we have to make alterations perhaps, possibly. According to the UN, sea levels are currently rising more than twice as fast as in the 20th century. We sometimes face challenges regarding maintenance, so with sea level rise uh, or changes in storm patterns, we sometimes have to stop our maintenance a little earlier, so we're already discovering how to deal with that. Uh, and don't forget, when we do maintenance on these kind of structures, we can always, in between, improve them as well. But sea level rise is not going that fast that we already have to, uh, sorrows for these kind of structures as well. There's no, no urgency, real urgency at the moment for that. We have to take it seriously, to be honest, but uh, no reason to be worried now, not at the moment. Two white steel gates, both as tall as the Eiffel Tower, float across the water to meet in the middle and sink to the bottom. It's hard to get sound of the gates closing. The ball joints weigh 680 tons each, but they're pretty silent. The barrier is one of the six delta works which were built after massive flooding hit the country in 1953. Almost a quarter of the Netherlands is located below sea level. Madeleine has come to watch with her daughter. Just look at the current over there. You can see the barrier sinking and the current that it creates. I think it's an amazing piece of technology. Just the ball joint, when you understand how big it is, how much force it carries, it's fantastic. Most of the onlookers say they feel safe knowing that the barrier is there. We got used to the idea that we'll always think of something. Well, if we can think of something like this, then we can also deal with another half meter, or an extra one and a half meters, right? Local entrepreneurs also see innovation as the way to deal with rising sea levels. Minke van Wingerde, and we are here by the Floating Farm. Minke van Wingerde is the co-founder of Floating Farm, the first of its kind in the world. Forty cows are kept on this large barge in the port of Rotterdam. Most are lazily chewing their feed. A couple saunter down the bridge towards a small patch of grass on land to graze. The milk they produce is processed below deck. An on-site shop sells milk, yogurt and cheese. Hurricane Sandy 2012. Hurricane Sandy was the reason we started. Back then, we saw that after two days, there was no more fresh food available because the provision of food in a city relies heavily on logistics. And if something floods, there are no more logistics. So we had the idea that if you build in a climate-adaptive way, meaning you move up and down with the tide on the water, you're less reliant on logistics. Large cities are often in deltas, which have to deal with high or low tides. And this is a solution which allows you to produce food no matter what the water level is. The techniques learned here are spreading. There's been interest in floating farms as far afield as Bangladesh, Singapore and Dubai. 
As sea levels continue to rise across the world, the Dutch are hoping to show others how to adapt rather than fight the rising tide. This is Fernand van Tetz, DW, at the Maasland Barrier. That report out of Holland brings us to the end of this week's Living Planet. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show and you've got a moment, leave us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also always email us at livingplanet at dw.com. My name is Charlie Shield. Living Planet will be back next week with more environment stories from around the world. <laughs>